Welcome to a Sunday Meet Kevin Report. It is a Sunday, February 5th, and we've got some stuff to cover. Boy, oh boy, there's always something going on in markets. Starting, of course, with that spy balloon finally being out of our airspace as it drifted into the Atlantic Ocean off the East Coast. It was finally taken down. We had an F-22 fighter jet uh, launch a one, a missile, a heat-seeking missile, and took down that darn spy balloon. <laughs> now, what really, from from my point of view, and we won't go super deep into the details of all the spy balloon stuff you've probably already heard about, but from my point of view, this is really simple. This is China being aggressive and exerting their relevance on a global stage. That's all this is. Look, the spy balloon was obvious. It wasn't a weather balloon. It was a spy balloon with propellers. It was motorized. It can move angles. And people say, hey, wh why would they do a, you know, some sort of balloon as opposed to satellites? And the reality is spy balloons can give you substantially different angles that you just can't get uh, from satellites. And potentially you could use both images together, satellites and spy balloons, and uh, get a pretty good look at things you otherwise wouldn't have had a really good look at. Now, uh, talks were that Joe Biden wanted to shoot this thing down as soon as he heard about it, but the Pentagon apparently advised him not to until they had uh, the opportunity to do so in a safe area, uh, that it wasn't necessary to, to take the spy balloon out as uh, it wouldn't reveal too much information anyway. Uh, who knows? Who knows what ends up being true here? Who knows if Joe Biden just ended up responding to that sort of backlash by saying, well, I asked them to shoot it down earlier, which could have really been like, why don't we shoot it down? <laughs> you know, more of like a rhetorical question. Who knows? But that's not behind us. But the tensions with China won't be behind us for a while. So we'll be paying attention to China a lot uh, going forward. And uh, one of the things that I'll, we'll be talking about in, in this here is, will be what's a way to maybe get exposure to investing in China without investing in China? I, I personally think there's a high risk of if you're investing in, for example, Chinese ADRs that are listed here, uh, there's still that delisting risk. Remember, we went through that years ago, this fear that, oh, no, Chinese companies are going to get delisted if they don't follow U.S. accounting uh, requirements. Th those things are still a risk, and those things become more and more of a risk as tensions with China uh, continue to escalate. So we'll, we'll see. Obviously, China was not very happy that their uh, balloon got popped, but then again, you know, neither are children. So uh, Barron's this morning had an interesting piece talking uh, briefly about the wage price spiral. They, they had this argument that really uh, they believe it seems sort of ludicrous to think that people can ultimately demand higher wages. Uh, they, they kind of believe that, no, it's actually companies that set prices. And uh, companies will set prices based on what customers are willing to pay. So if customers are willing to pay more, then companies might raise their prices. That's sort of the thesis that we actually did see play out over the last few years of increasing prices. But Barron's kind of tries to throw cold water on the idea that if there's a shortage of workers, we might end up having wages go up. Now, what they didn't mention in this, because I think what they're trying to do is they're trying to evoke sort of your own thesis that, hey, there's inflation. I'm going to go to my boss and ask for a raise. <laughs> the odds are it's just not going to go that well. But I, I think what Barron's missed here is the job switchers issue. See, when people switch jobs, that's usually when they have the largest amount of pricing power. Because obviously a business who's hiring is looking for workers in demand with a certain skill set. And at least in, for example, piloting, it's become very difficult for people and businesses to hire pilots. 
to where, guess how they end up convincing people to work for them? They pay them more money. That's how you can ultimately, in my opinion, get sort of that wage push inflation flowing through the economy, which again, Barron's tries to throw some cold water on, but I, I think they're doing so uh, while ignoring the fact that job switchers have a lot of power uh, in, in pricing their goods and services or their skill sets, basically. So uh, another thing that we noticed, uh, or at least uh, over the last 24 hours here, is that yeah, there was a lot of backlash over the Cybertruck and this potential that the Cybertruck would not actually receive the full light bar that it was originally pictured with. Uh, it ended up uh, being spotted with, with mirrors on the sides. The wheels weren't as cool as the prior mirrors. Uh, or uh, as the prior wheels, uh, a lot of things about the vehicle uh, were, were different and it led to quite a few concerns on Twitter. Uh, here's the picture of it. You can see the bottom there shows no light bar across the middle, just these sort of two small baby style brake lights on the left and right. Maybe, uh, you know, uh, you know, a small four inches of brake lights on each side with no larger light bar, which spanned the width of the entire vehicle previously. Uh, you can see the uh, what looks like the uh, hubcaps uh, on the tires are different and possibly some more uh, basic style tires here. And uh, you've also got mirrors, which you previously did not have in the original uh, sort of, uh, hey, look at the Cybertruck version. Uh, it also looks to me, uh, and this is a little bit more challenging to tell because it could be just an angle manipulation, but it also looks to me like the back, uh, which was angled in more, and was longer, so in other words, that sort of that back hatch, which again was angled into the car more and uh, extended lower. Looks like it's kind of shrunk a little bit in, in uh, depth, uh, and, and then it's also not as angled in anymore. It might be difficult to tell just because of um, the way these photos are taken. Uh, this photo or, or the new photo was taken from a lower angle. The other photo is taken from more of a high to low angle. So that could be manipulating our perspectives a little bit. But there are definitely some changes here uh, that, uh, that that led some folks to wonder, hey, wait a minute, what's what's going on here, Elon? Are you clickbaiting us with a different vehicle now? Uh, now, Elon did come out and suggest that, don't worry, fear not, the production version of the Cybertruck will have a full light bar. So the full light bar will be coming. Uh, in addition to that, the mirrors that are attached here on the side will end up being removable mirrors. Uh, which I thought was quite interesting as well. So removable mirrors coming to the Cybertruck. Now, uh, there's also another thing that I went through on Twitter that I saw. Let me see here. This was, so last, yeah, here it is. Last week we went through the uh, service, or we saw, so we did two things. It, we we looked at the Service Now dude on CNBC, and then in our uh, course member live stream, we actually went through the earnings for this company for ServiceNow. And I personally have had a thesis of wanting to stay away from software as a service businesses. And part of the reason for that is this idea that if companies are tightening the belt, uh, so to speak, and, and, and they're potentially hiring less employees at, uh, at individual companies uh, who might need more software, right? More software seats. If companies are tightening the belt on hiring, then you need less software seats which rather than leading to growth at software companies could potentially lead to a reduction of growth at software companies, which is the last thing you wanna see at SaaS businesses, uh, got us sort of looking a little bit deeper into the financials of ServiceNow, especially since the CEO went on CNBC and it just seemed like something was off. We couldn't really put our finger on 
what was going on with the CEO of ServiceNow? Why, why did he seem so characteristic-esque, if I will, uh, if, if I may? Uh, it, and so the thesis was that, oh, well, you know, he's got his sunglasses on, uh, he's got some kind of blindness in one of his eyes, uh, and, and maybe that's just his personality. He just sort of has that sort of loosey-goosey personality, and, and uh, I don't know, something about it just seemed off, and we couldn't quite put our finger on what it was. But now we got these filings that are showing up uh, at the SEC, and take a look at some of these filings. So, we pop open the first one. We have a filing of a, uh, a change in ownership, ServiceNow, dated after the CNBC interview, and it's William McDermott, who's the CEO of the company. You can see his role right here, chairman and CEO. And take a look at this, folks. Here is a list of stocks that he sold. We know it's a sell because of the D right here, which says disposed. And you can, on the right side, see how many shares this individual actually holds. And it started at 53,000 shares, which worth noting at 53, approximately 1,000 shares at about 455 bucks. It's about 24 million bucks worth of shares that this guy owned. Well, he sold 53,000 shares all the way down to 1,933. So the CEO of ServiceNow it basically just dumped completely out. Now, there's a theory, maybe, that, oh, well, he's about to get a bunch of new stock-based compensation, and that'll pop that right back up. That's a nice theory, but it, it, it's not one that, uh, <laughs> that I would want to necessarily speculate on, <laughs> but it's definitely a theory that people have. Uh, okay, so that's just the CEO. Who knows? You know, then again, maybe maybe he's got, you know, I don't know, some expenses coming up, right? Let's, well, let's give him the benefit of the doubt for a moment. Who, who knows? Who knows, right? All right. So now, what do we have over here? We have another filing from the chief people officer. Yeah, they have a CPO, okay? Anyway, this particular person on January 27th, just a few days before the CEO, ended up dumping 1,083 shares being left with now 267. So the CEO dumped like over 96% of his shares. This guy's dumped over 75% of his shares. And this guy over here, this is uh, Smith Paul John or John Paul Smith. I don't know, it's three first names over here. This person is the chief commercial officer, and this person literally sold all of his shares. He owns zero. Literally nothing. So all of a sudden, you have three pretty large executives at ServiceNow basically zeroing out their ownership in the company. And again, who knows? Maybe maybe there's this big uh, new um, uh, push of stock-based comp that's coming out, and, and they're basically taking their January uh, dollars off the table, so to speak, and they're all going to go buy new homes. I don't know. But uh, it certainly raises the, the question of, like, wait a minute, what what's going on over here at ServiceNow? So we could briefly look at some of their financials and we'll find that their subscription revenues have been growing pretty decently. They're at uh, almost $6.9 billion in revenues here, which if we divide that by last year, you're sitting at somewhere around a 23% gain, which is pretty impressive. Uh, you've got subscription costs of only about 1.2, so their margin is incredibly high. 
Uh, and this is a company that does actually take funds to the bottom line. It's got about $325 million coming to the bottom line after uh, some marketing expenses, research and development, and SG&A expenses of $5.3 billion. Ton of money going into marketing, but this is pretty darn typical of a software as a service business. So the idea is you get people in, they end up becoming pretty sticky and they stick around. Now, when it look when you look at actual cash, I mean, they are generating cash. You got $2.7 billion in cash coming down to operating activities. Uh, they, their uh, free cash flow is in excess of about $2.1, uh, $2.2 billion. Pretty good as well. And uh, their liabilities, take a look at their liabilities here. We've got current liabilities. Most of the current liabilities are deferred revenues. We've got long-term debt of about $1.5 billion. But they've also got $1.5 billion of cash uh, and uh, receivables, short-term investments. We've got plenty of current assets, over $6 billion in current assets. So just from a very brief look at the financials, you couldn't really tell from the financials that things are uh, looking necessarily bleak or horrible. But for some reason, uh, the executives certainly felt it was an opportune time to uh, dump after their Q4 report, which just came out. And uh, it doesn't really send the best of potential signals for what that could mean for Q1. Q1, in other words, software service businesses could end up getting whacked. And to some extent, it kind of makes sense. I mean, think about it this way. Most of the layoffs that have been happening, they seem to have concentrated in Q4, right? So if you have Q4 layoffs, you're probably not going to see those subscription cancellations until the expiration of, of that term, even if those employees are laid off, right? So for example, let's say you have employees uh, who got fired in Q3 or Q4. It's quite likely, I feel, that most of those subscriptions would probably come up for a renewal or at least a significant portion of them at the end of the calendar year. Possibly, you know, year over year for, for when they were hired, you know, say they were hired in March, maybe those would expire in March. But a lot of these larger contracts with companies end up getting negotiated at the end of the year. And that's specifically because a lot of companies try to really maximize their year-end bonuses. And so they they have these special sales to get new companies signed up. And new companies sometimes try to spend some extra money towards the end of the year to get some more deductions in for tax purposes, although that could temporarily hurt some of the uh, the earnings per share. One of the ways accountants offset that is they end up you know, signing up for these things on like the 25th of December. And then they only actually uh, you know, expense five days worth of that contract because the rest would just be a prepaid expense. So that way it doesn't show up as a, a negative to your earnings per share. In English, uh, companies do their books a little differently than people do, okay? Like when we buy something at the end of the year, we're like, yes, IRS, we're writing the whole thing off. Uh, companies, they sign these things and then they often only expense a small portion of it uh, until they actually use the product throughout the rest of the year. But that's because they've got a lot more accounting staff involved. Uh, and, and so the rationale there is a, a lot of contracts do usually get signed at the end of the year. So I wouldn't be surprised if Q1 just ends up being so miserable because you get the layoffs from the second half of last year coming into Q1 and your renewals in Q4 sucked. So maybe your churn went up and it wasn't necessarily churn because your product was bad, but it'll look like it was churn because your product was bad. It was actually because of layoffs. And so maybe, just maybe, the services industry is getting reamed or at least potentially is going to get reamed 
because of the idea that uh, layoffs and end-of-the-year signings were so miserable that the executives over at ServiceNow are booking out of there. And when we look at other software service companies, you can look at a company like Bill.com, the fundamentals and financials look good. Don't get me wrong. These companies are very expensive. Like the ser service sector businesses, uh, the software service businesses, high multiples still today. But, uh, but you know, Bill.com reported earnings. The earnings weren't actually that bad. But guess what ended up hitting them? They missed slightly on the guidance. And when companies don't grow as software companies, those really expensive multiples vanish. Companies, or, or investors I should say, really, really like to see growth at SaaS companies. And if the growth goes away, the valuation multiples go away and you get a big old stock compression. It's exactly what we saw at, um, uh, at, at Bill.com and it's one of the reasons Bill.com shot right back to its lows, dropping over 20% in just one day. So personally, it sort of reiterates this feeling that I have that, okay, yeah, we wanna probably limit our exposure. Again, not personal financial advice for you, but well, I'm, I'm thinking about limiting my exposure to SaaS businesses, not only because of the layoffs and contract cycles, but also because their valuations are higher and if their growth shrinks, they're, they're very quick to potentially co uh, correcting on price. Just look at Bill.com, for example. We went through this with course members. You have Bill.com over here. It was growing at 78% at the beginning of the year. Then uh, it, uh, it dropped its growth to 66% uh, quarter over quarter. And I hate to say it, but in the earnings call, in the earnings report, the company warned that they actually expect revenue to be relatively flat for Q1. So they beat expectations, right? They came in with 260 mil of revenue. They were only expecting 247 mil of revenue, but they expect Q1 to be basically flat. So think about this. You're paying an infinite price to earnings ratio because this company loses money, bill.com. Bill.com loses money. I'll do the valuation for service now in just a moment. So bill.com loses money. It's, you know, again, it's over here at negative uh, 90 cents uh, for the quarter. Last uh, Q3, for 2021, it was also sitting at negative, uh, a negative EPS, negative 78 cents, uh, and uh, they've been negative uh, for for any of the reporting periods that we have uh, here from Bill.com. So not yet profitable, and you're really building in to the valuation for Bill.com that this company is going to keep growing, but their growth slowed from 78 to 66 percent, and now guess what? It's going to slow to zero. That's scary. That scares a lot of people. People are very nervous about that idea that, oh no, Bill.com's growth is going to slow because guess what? Bill.com spends a crap load of money on SG&A, uh, sales, marketing, uh, general, administrative, R&D services. Just consider sales and marketing alone for a moment. Just sales and marketing of this company, 2.3x year over year. Yikes, that makes people pretty nervous. Now. They do hope to get to about a buck of EPS in 2023, but consider that for a moment. If you have flat growth in Q1 because people aren't renewing or they're canceling at higher rates at corporations, generally for, for these companies, you're, you're getting larger companies, although bill.com is pretty useful for individual people as well. But now you're looking at this company or you're like, Kathy Wood just loaded up on this sucker on the dip, but I'm looking at it and I'm going, Kathy, what are you seeing? The darn thing's at $94. And they're projecting a dollar of EPS, maybe, if they even can turn around and go profitable in 2023. 
which Wall Street does expect them to go profitable, but if they don't, it's gonna be a disaster. But at 94, divided by a buck, $94 per share divided by a buck, you're paying 94 times earnings for bill.com. That's really, really expensive, especially in a recessionary environment where people are getting laid off. The people who are getting hired, also, this is worth noting, the people who are really getting hired a lot right now, at least this is what we see, uh, the people getting hired a lot right now are hospitality, leisure, restaurants, travel. Not, not in places where people are using software suites, okay? Your software suite that's getting hired right now is, is your glove seller, <laughs> you know? Like, in other words, like, physical stuff that you're doing with your hands. Those are the people getting hired. Look at Chipotle. They're hiring 15,000 people for burrito season. I didn't even know there was a burrito season. Apparently, it's March to May. It's insane. They're actually finding it easier to hire people, though, which is good for potentially eliminating that uh, wage price spiral. But look at even ServiceNow when you're looking at these SaaS businesses. ServiceNow is selling for 51.4 times their uh, projected earnings per share for 2023. 54 times. And their growth might end up only being like 15%. So they're selling for like a three peg. And, and this is why I so much have aligned with the idea of, my goodness, I could get a sick, a sick and low PE uh, or peg ratio at companies like AMD, ridiculously low right now. You could look at Tesla, even after it's run up, it's still pretty dang low. Uh, a lot of companies, selling not too darn expensively outside the, uh, uh, the the software biz. Software biz, that one's still moving pretty expensively. Uh, and, and so it wouldn't shock me to see that some of these profitless companies especially end up having run-ups, uh, uh, you know, as sort of the stock market in general moves up. But then what happens after the run-up? Uh-oh, well, after the run-up, you end up getting a, a miss on those growth rates all the numbers switch and flip-flop, what do you have? You end up getting pain. Here's some other companies with low peg ratios, by the way. Uh, pain like you just saw at bill.com. NVIDIA is trading for about 1.4 times peg. The lower, the better, okay? Tesla's under one at 0.75. That's assuming a 45% EPS growth. But let me drop that. I'll drop Tesla to 38%, and that brings them to a 0.89 peg. So 0.89 on Tesla, Apple's at about three, a little pricey, people kind of still see uh, Apple, that's assuming 8% growth. You've got uh, uh, Embraer's trading for 0.52, NVIDIA 1.42, AMD 0.94, Enphase is at 1.72 after their correction, SolarEdge 0.94, Cloudflare, here's another software biz, they're projected to be profitable this year, but trading for like eight times peg, the software businesses just haven't gone through the peg corrections yet. Well, yeah, well some of them have. Adobe's only at 1.9, Autodesk at 2.26. Uh, so so there, there, there's some potential uh, opportunities. There's Generac sitting at 1.45. So some things to look at. But yeah, I don't know. That ServiceNow and, and the Bill.com reaction, a little bit of a red flag for the SaaS companies, especially the profitless ones. So uh, I would just... Uh, or just be uh, be careful <laughs> if you're, you're exposed to SaaS. So, all right, that gives us some insight into the good old SaaS businesses. Uh, all right, let's see here. Next up, we're gonna look at some earnings calls. And these are actually pretty insightful. Okay, here we go. Stand by for earnings calls. 
Okay, we got yeah, we have four of them to look at. We've got to talk about earnings calls because we get a lot of insights from these, and I'm gonna give you the bottom lines on four big ones. We're gonna start with Starbucks, and we're gonna go to Apple, Amazon, and Qualcomm. And what we're going to be looking for are hints because these are all companies that just reported two days ago. And we wanna look for hints of how's China doing? How quickly is China going to rebound? Because the faster China rebounds, the more oil prices and commodity prices might end up bouncing. And the more risk we have of potentially an inflationary second wave or inflationary shock, right? So how's China doing is one thing we wanna look at. What's it like hiring people? Is it getting easier or harder to hire people? What are we expecting in terms of a bottom for earnings per share? And where is the real pain in this market? Let's find out. And I think one of the best ways to do that is regularly studying earnings calls because you get insight leading hints. They don't wanna say like leading warnings because CEOs don't like to sandbag their own company share prices. But let's just say you end up getting hints and those hints end up being sort of a liability preservation method to make sure they can look back and go, yeah, well, we did warn you. <laughs> so we'll go ahead again. We'll start with Starbucks and then we'll get into Apple, Amazon, Qualcomm. Let's get started. First, Starbucks. And speaking of Starbucks, it's time for a sip of coffee. Mm -hmm. That is some delicious Kirkland brand coffee that unfortunately I have let sit too long and now it's room temperature. So it's not that great actually. Anyway, what do we have here? So we're, we start with China. The first thing Starbucks tells us about China is that a lot of their employees have already been infected and they're actually now back to work. What's very interesting though is the customer base is not actually running back to the stores. This was a surprise to me. I thought that after the reopening, we would have somewhat of a United States kind of return to everybody kind of all of a sudden in boom or going back outside and going, uh, uh, <laughs> you know, basically yeeting uh, right back into normal daily life uh, with a lot of excitement. Well, what Starbucks is noticing is a gradual return to Starbucks's. I was surprised by that. I thought we were gonna get a lot faster of a return. So the reopening is not, as uh, Jerome Powell even puts it, it's not like a light switch. It's, it's this more soft and gradual return that we're seeing at Starbucks, which is actually good if you think about it because you don't want inflationary pressure to come all at once. Now they mentioned this a few times throughout the earnings call, that the return in China, it, while they are very bullish on it and they expect the eventual return to be very good and strong for Starbucks, it's not going to come all at once. It's going to come substantially uh, gradually and uh, really just over time. Uh, then we have now a total of $3.3 billion in gift cards loaded up at Starbucks. It's worth noting that gift cards, about 10 to 15% of gift cards are never used. Never used. So think about that. If a company sells a gift card for $100, the company's looking at that and basically saying cha-ching to 10 to 15 bucks of basically a donation. So if you ever buy gift cards in your life, realize that you're basically donating 10 to 15% of the value of that card to the company. So uh, Starbucks and China, they're expected to get up to 9,000 stores in China by 2025. Now this is really remarkable growth. 
In fact, one of the things that I did is I looked back at 2018 and how many stores uh, Starbucks had. And in 2018, they had 3,521 Chinese stores. In the third quarter of 2022, they had 5,368 stores. Now, this was really remarkable because think about that. Over the COVID pandemic, basically, through the lockdowns, they ended up growing their store base by 52% in China. But this was even more remarkable. In 2018, Starbucks had 15,341 global stores. In Q3 2022, they had 17,133. Now, I'm not expecting you to do the mental math on that, but let me give you what I'm getting at. They added 1,792 stores in those four years. But guess what? A net 97% of the stores they added were in China. That's wild. So in other words, during the three years of COVID lockdown, they blew up their focus on China. And in Q3 of last year, they were sitting at 5,358 stores. Today, which is just like two quarters later, they're at 6,100 stores. So another 700 plus stores on top of that. And by 2025, they expect to again grow Chinese stores by another 50% going from 6,100 to 9,000 stores by 2025. That means the next two years, they're going to build about 3,000 stores in China. If you are investing in Starbucks, you are going all in on China's recovery. It's actually very interesting because personally, I think there's less risk investing in a company like Starbucks to get Chinese exposure than investing directly into Chinese companies that have a potential risk of getting delisted in America. It's kind of interesting. Now, listen to why. You go to the earnings call and they literally tell you. They say, our customers in China are creating a full return familiar pre-pandemic or returning to uh, routines from pre-COVID. And they believe uh, that China is basically a huge set of customer demand waiting to be unleashed. So, I mean, this, this is pretty bullish on China here. Early indicators are that the beginning is starting to happen in the largest cities now. With many Chinese recovered from COVID, people returning to work, border and travel restrictions lifted, mall traffic and retail store activity on the rise, and consumers reintroducing social activity back into their daily lives. We are expecting the second half of fiscal 2023 in China to be stronger than the first half but uncertainties remain and we remain cautious in the short term. So in other words, again, they're super, super bullish on China, but they're also trying to like moderate our expectations that we're not going to go basically from zero to hero in one quarter, that it's probably going to be more towards the second half of the year that we actually start seeing uh, this, this build out. Now, keep in mind the second half of the year part, because when we look at some of the other earnings calls, you're going to learn a lot about the second half of the year. But I'll tell you, they, they think they are in the early chapters of growth for China. And I mean, it makes sense when they're expecting to grow their stores by another 50%. Really remarkable. So I was very impressed with that. Uh, now, another thing that I thought was interesting here is they talk about how they gained productivity 
by uh, by basically rolling out more uh, or, and, and higher quality or better equipment. And they think they're going to see margin expansion in the second half of the year and more in future years to come. Now, I know this is Starbucks, but I have a very strong thesis and I continue to see it get reiterated. So I am looking for signs that I'm wrong. Don't get me wrong. I, I don't like confirmation bias, but I really have this thesis that supply chains are like a rubber band. When COVID hit, that rubber band stretched out really, really far and in many cases snapped. And now companies are like, what the heck? We never wanna be in a situation again where we can't fulfill the crazy demand that we have. And so now companies are investing more and more into equipment, including uh, Starbucks, but even like, look at the chip manufacturers. The chip manufacturers are the perfect example for you. The chip manufacturer uh, or, or the chip equipment manufacturer, basically the company that makes the machines that make chips, it, the big one for advanced manufacturing is called ASML. They've got like a 90% market share on the advanced chip making equipment market. You can invest in them. I, I have exposure to ASML myself. It's a Dutch company. So that company is actually expecting at the same time as PC sales are plummeting like 32% year over year and memory demand is in the trash. Uh, Samsung's Samsung reported revenue declines of 69%. TSMC slowed production. NVIDIA, AMD, and Qualcomm are all complaining about high inventory sitting on shelves at stores. At the same time as that's happening, guess what ASML says, the equipment manufacturer? They expect growth of 25%. <laughs> I'm like, what? You guys are still growing? Yeah, it's because the chip manufacturers, while they realize inventory is high, they're actually still investing in equipment because they know when that next demand wave comes, after we get through this nonsense of a recession or whatever it is we're going through right now, this economic contraction, they want to be prepared to fulfill that demand. So I have this belief that supply chains are basically a scrunchied up rubber band right now. And when we actually reopen, whether it's with China or, or you know, China and the US, whatever, the market going back to normal, supply chains are ready to absorb it. They're so ready to absorb it. Try, try, to, try to break a rubber band that's scrunchied up. I, like you have to stretch it pretty far, certainly a lot further than you would if it started unscrunchied up, right? So this is really where companies are actually saying, hey, look, we're going to invest in all this equipment, but we're not actually even turning it on yet. That's hence the scrunchy idea, right? Like we have all that potential, but we're actually purposefully compressing that potential right now because we don't yet have all the demand, but we're ready from a supply side. Even Starbucks is talking, talking about that, right? We'll see more of that. Anyway, so they do expect to see this, this slower reopening in China lead to some more pressure going into their Q2, uh, which is really January to March for them. Uh, in January, uh, China's comp sales were still down about 15% year over year, which is a lot better than the 42% they were down before. Again, this is, this is going to be gradual for China, but it's still very, very exciting. Uh, they talk about China probably contributing positively to their margins by uh, the second half or end of the year. They're expected to continue with dividends and buybacks at Starbucks, which is pretty attractive to investors. And uh, excluding China, they talk about enormous growth. But they also talk about the following. They say, uh, China performed even better than we thought 
And so what we're seeing now with 25% growth is growth over growth and performance over performance. And we are expecting in some markets to see the economy inflation slow or, or we're expecting. Okay, let me rephrase this because they said it in a funky way. So basically they're seeing tremendous growth at Starbucks and they thought that people would end up spending less money on Starbucks drinks uh, because of the inflation right? that the uh, world economies have seen but they've actually seen the opposite. If anything, they've seen substantial growth in spite of all of the inflation uh, that uh, that we've been experiencing, which I thought was quite remarkable, especially since when we look at Amazon's call, you're going to see that Amazon's kind of like, yeah, consumers are uh, choosing cheaper stuff now uh, and, uh, and and less, um, you know, less high margin stuff for us. <laughs> Starbucks isn't seeing that. Uh, so they, yeah, see, look at that here. They literally say it here. At a time when people are generally trading down and there's a lot of discounting going on, we've actually had the highest average price per ticket. And we don't see a situation where our customers are trading down. Uh, now, look, I, I, I know there's the thesis that companies could just be lying to you, but they, they don't do that in the earnings calls uh, generally. I mean, don't get me wrong. They, like, they will dodge questions, but that's where you want to be careful. When companies dodge questions, that's usually where they're hiding stuff. Is the It's in the dodge. But when they do say stuff, they expose themselves to massive liability if, if they straight up lie. So generally, you won't get lies in earnings calls. You'll get dodges. And it's often the dodges you want to pay attention to. There weren't many uh, uh, that I actually noticed in Starbucks. Starbucks was very, very bullish. Now, don't get me wrong. They're, they're like, you know, they're not like super cheap okay, as a stock right now. And I don't have any exposure to Starbucks myself. But it's very interesting, even just from the point of view of trying to understand what's going on in the economy. I mean, right now, Starbucks is trading for about 32 times on a P.E. basis. Uh, now, they're expected to grow substantially, especially with that Chinese exposure. They could potentially expand uh, uh, you know, their EPS by about 18% per year. Those are the current estimates. But still, that puts you around uh, you know 1.7 times peg. So so it's not like you're getting this crazy deal investing in, in Starbucks right now. But uh, I don't know. I'm, I'm very excited about at least what I'm hearing here. In the very early stages of our recovery. All right, let's see here. Let's keep going. Where are some other meets? We do. Oh, yeah, yeah. This was interesting. So I'm always interested, especially after all of this crazy labor report that we just had, where a lot of people are saying, oh, no, we're going to have massive wage inflation. Oh, no, Jerome Powell's going to rug pull us because jobs came in hot. Look, the, the January seasonal adjustments for jobs is so ludicrous. It doesn't surprise me that economists couldn't get it right. I mean, economists so far have been wrong and wrong and wrong and wrong, like almost every single data release. This one, they just happen to be off by a factor of eight standard deviations. But that's in part because every January, you get a substantial amount of layoffs. And the Bureau of Labor Statistics throws in a seasonal adjustment of oftentimes like three million jobs where they're like, okay, the first three million jobs, we'll just pretend those didn't exist just to give you an idea of, of how the labor market sort of works. So for example, if the labor department's like, we're gonna assume we lost 3 million jobs to, uh, uh, you know, for seasonal effects. And then all of a sudden they do the numbers and they're like, oh, it looks like we only lost 2.9. Now it's kind of like you had a 100,000 job gains report once you factor in that seasonal adjustment, right? Well, if they come in and say, hey, 
you know, this season, we think we only lost 2.6 million jobs, <laughs> right? And, and the number is substantially off from that because their estimate was bad because more businesses retained employees, which is exactly what happened. What happens, you get this crazy labor report that nobody could have predicted, substantially in part because of weird seasonal adjustments that are pretty arcane and difficult to understand exactly the method behind all the January madness. But uh, not a lot of people are really super concerned in the finance space about uh, the January report because Januarys are very commonly weird. But not only that, we know that Chipotle is talking about low, lower turnover. I've mentioned that like 17 times on the channel, so sorry for being redundant. But I think it's great because if you think about it, you've got a substantial uh, a lack of pricing pressure from employees at companies like Chipotle. And these are the ones growing, right? The retail, hospitality, restaurants, travel, those are the sectors growing. So we wanna see less wage pricing pressures in the services sector. Well, guess what Starbucks does? Services. And guess what Starbucks just said? We do not have any labor shortage issue and we're ready to rock and roll in hiring more people for our new store openings. Great. I don't see any issue at all with our hiring or our people staying with Starbucks. This is fantastic because if people, again, are changing jobs a lot, you have a problem because you could potentially drive wages up a lot and training costs go through the moon. But now you get Chipotle and Starbucks reiterating they're not having the labor problem that they used to have, which is great. And so they're seeing their turnover substantially reduce. Uh, and they're also, listen to this, we continue to, despite record low unemployment, we continue to see and experience strong and consistent overall applicant flow to support our store hiring with typical seasonality. This is fantastic. This is really great news. Uh, we uh, additionally on inflation, we're seeing inflation elevated relative to years prior uh, to fiscal 22, but we're starting to see it soften slightly. That's great. So we don't have expectations that we will have to further increase prices. This is also fantastic. We don't want to hear that businesses are pulling off what they did in January of 2022, where everybody's like, we're raising prices because we can. We have unlimited elasticity of demand, so we will raise prices. Uh, instead, here, Starbucks expects to see prices normalize towards the back half of the year. Uh, and Starbucks also mentions that, uh, well, okay, that's just a reiteration of prices moderating. So here, just, just in Starbucks, we got a lot of insights about China, inflation, and wages. Really insightful, in my opinion. I, I'm very excited about all, all of this insight because it doesn't make me nervous about the markets. And I'd like to read all the information I can to see, am, am I missing something? Should I be being nervous, right? Am I, am I blinding myself, biasing myself, thinking, oh, maybe I, you know, uh, I'm in the market, so I just need to look at everything through rose-colored glasses? I don't think so. Uh, because again, we're seeing this reiteration significantly and it's not just the chips, but it's also companies like Apple. Look at this. So Apple obviously blamed their, uh, their iPhone miss on supply chain issues. And, uh, we, and then they also talk about how the iPads beat because supply chains came back, uh, and, uh, and, and people were actually able to buy iPads again. But uh, they talk about how the macroeconomic environment in the past quarter was much more challenging than it was 12 months ago. 
In other words, at the same time as they experience supply chain shortages for their iPhone, the market is clearly one where people are spending a little bit less uh, I mean, that's obvious. Uh, people are taking on more debt, so people are getting squeezed a lot more. Uh, a lot of folks still trying to support their existing spending habits, uh, certainly, but uh, let's, let's see what kind of forward-looking data we can get from Apple here. From a supply chain point of view, says Tim Cook, we're now at a point where production is where we need it to be, and so the problem is behind us. Now, that's actually quite interesting to see Tim Cook mention, look, it's over. We had a supply chain issue, now it's over. And now we think we have a very resilient supply chain in aggregate. That's good. That's again, reiterating the scrunchy analogy uh, of, of uh, supply chains. And Apple is clearly seeing those. But there's also more that Apple gives us. Apple talks about India. And I thought this was neat. They talk about India being a hugely exciting market for us and a major focus. Now, Apple is trying to get some of their manufacturing and assembly out of China, and India seems to be one of those places a lot of companies are going. So you really want to potentially start paying attention to India as an emerging market a bit. Obviously, you've got that massive Adani scandal that's, that's making people quite fearful about India. But anyway, uh, I thought this was fascinating. So we're, they're talking about how they basically see India as the next China, and they're taking what they learned in China how they scaled in China and bringing that to India. Now, another thing that I thought was really neat is Apple reiterates how excited they are about being the largest customer for Taiwan semiconductors, and they expect to continue to be the largest customer for Taiwan semiconductors in Arizona. Now, the reason I mentioned that is because A, I have exposure to Taiwan semiconductors as a stock, but number two, B, uh, I am a big fan of investing in real estate where there are jobs and there are a lot of jobs going into, uh, you know, Arizona and Ohio for chip making, even Intel. Well, a lot of people poop on Intel. They've, they've been screwing up pretty badly, but the potential of the next three years actually doesn't look that bad. They're, they're making some pretty smart changes. I'm, I'm very impressed. And usually I, I caution the old companies are just value traps, but I don't think you can cast everything with the same blanket and uh, mm, you want to keep an eye on Intel. So anyway, uh, let's see here. Uh, this I thought was a fascinating line from Tim Cook here. This is basically an elasticity of uh, demand statement here. He talks about how basically iPhones have become so integral in people's lives because it contains their contacts, their health information, their banking information, their smart home and everything, their vehicle, blah, 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 blah. And Tim Cook literally says, I think people are willing to really stretch to get the best they can afford in the category. I mean, I hate to say it, but he's kind of saying, we got it. We got big pee pee and we're proud. <laughs> I mean, it's pretty obvious. Uh, anyway, they did have weakness in Mac and wearables and the industry is challenged. You know, the industry across the board, especially in PC is contracting. But uh, what's, what I think is very interesting about this is you have an analyst who asks, hey, how is the PC industry going to go forward? And what do you have right here? You have Tim Cook dodging the question, basically saying, look, challenged, a lot of uncertainty, not in a position to be able to predict how 2023 is going to go. So not a lot of enthusiasm for the PC market. So something to pay attention to, especially if you're exposed to the peripherals, 
Corsair, Logitech, or, or, or other companies more specifically just relying on PCs, right? At least when you invest in something like uh, AMD, of course they have a PC segment, but you also have a server segment in uh, an and, and automotive sector, right? You've got, you've got some balancing effects. Logitech, I don't think you have as much of a benefit in that, uh, that sort of diversification. Now let's touch on the Apple earnings call. Uh, sorry, we just did Apple. Let's look at Amazon now. So Amazon was probably one of the, the, the weakest. I mean, Starbucks and uh, Apple, not bad, not bad at all. But uh, Amazon, not terribly excited about. And you're going to see why. We've seen during periods of economic uncertainty, customers are very careful about how they allocate their resources and where they choose to spend money. You get a lot of caution from Amazon, a lot. We continue to see inflationary pressures in worldwide stores. Now this is sort of in their intro here, and that's not great. We don't like to see that. So we wanna see if we can get some more insight. What do they mean on this, right? This is in their intro. And they see customers shifting to lower cost items. So you're really seeing more of the pain at Amazon. They also, and I thought this was fascinating just sort of broadly for, for companies, uh, companies are taking large severance expenses in Q4. And that's because they've laid off a lot of people. And those severance expenses should go away, obviously, uh, as long as they don't lay off more people in future quarters. So it's actually potentially a tailwind for the future. They also saw productivity improvements in full of fulfillment centers and logistics. It's worth noting that if you look at the Baltic dry index of uh, freight costs, and this is basically how much does it cost to ship stuff over the sea, and uh, you can see that massive spike we had at the end of 2021, and then of course the war spike. We're we're at lows uh, of of the Baltic uh, dry index. I mean, we're we're at as low as what we saw during, or nearly as what we saw during COVID, which is actually insane uh, to think about. So so that's very good for disinflationary forces on logistics, especially when they talk about trying to uh, improve not only their productivity within their own logistics, but we're, we're trying to see this from an inflation point of view as well. Uh, difficult operating environment, macro environment, yeah, whatever, Amazon. Okay, we continue to believe grocery is a significant opportunity. That's for Amazon. I, I personally think that's like a terrible business to be in and relatively low margin. Do keep in mind that Whole Foods just came out and started talking about the potential for lowering uh, uh, prices at Whole Foods because they've started to see less supply costs uh, and, and they want to pass those benefits on to consumers. It's suggesting that probably a lot of customers are leaving Whole Foods and they're going to Walmart or, or something cheaper, Costco, whatever, Sam's Club. And that's not great for Amazon because a business they want to expand in is seeing weakness. So now they're talking about cutting prices substantially. All right, we'll see, Amazon. Uh, so then we have... The second thing, okay, this is probably the biggest reason I do not invest in Amazon. I think they are in a race to basically teleporting goods to you. And that is not a race that I want to invest in because I don't think teleportation is going to be real. But not only am I not going to invest in teleportation, I'm not going to waste my money investing in companies, my personal opinion, where those companies are going to take all that money and throw it into trying to get your stupid package to you 30 minutes faster because you're impatient. Now, don't get me, don't get me wrong. I love 
that two-day shipping is becoming one-day shipping is becoming uh, a same-day shipping is becoming three-hour shipping and in the future might be drone delivery services. But this is extremely expensive. And Amazon here is basically saying, look, we're optimizing, but yeah, we are going to spend a ton of money making sure we can get goods to our customers faster because as they say, we believe continuing to get products to customers faster makes customers happier. <laughs> okay, we'll keep spending money, Amazon. I don't know. I don't know. Customers right now are very conscious on how much they're spending. We'll continue to, be, uh, continue to work really hard on being sharp on pricing. Notice the difference between this and the Apple call. In the Apple call, you got Tim Cook who's basically like, yeah, we think the iPhone has huge PP. And then here you've got Amazon. It's like, we got tiny PP. Um, yeah, we're gonna work on getting this a little sharper. All right, it's pretty obvious the differences between the two so far. Uh, you know, but then again, I mean, when you're comparing companies, it should be pretty obvious who's got a bigger PP. You know, and, and in this case, it, Apple clearly has a substantially larger set of pricing power than uh, than Amazon does. What other notes did we get out of Amazon? Out of Amazon, we get advertising, lower advertising spend across the board. Not great. Uh, a little bit of another red flag there for Trade Desk. You get a lot of red flags on the map for Trade Desk. Yeah, people hope, include myself included, that Trade Desk can continue to grow because you're you're in such a small sector of the digital ad spend market. You think that maybe there'll actually be a downtrend from uh, companies spending on TV advertising and switching over to connected TV, and that could continue to propel growth in CTV. But if companies just reduce their spending across the board, then yeah, you might have some transition over, but you still have less growth. So not great. On AWS growth rate, so this was actually one of the qualms I had with the Amazon uh, financial statement is their uh, growth rate on AWS was, was faltering quite a bit uh, and their margins were faltering as well. Uh, and, you know, I generally don't like that. When you're investing in a company for growth and you're getting margin compression and you're getting slowing of revenues, it's not great. I actually happen to have that document, so here it is. AWS slowed growth to under 20% and margin compressed 420 basis points. Yoikes. All right, so what does Amazon have to say for themselves? Well, they say on AWS growth rate, I'm not sure I could forecast for you with any level of certainty what's going to happen beyond this quarter. That's a red flag. Here's a dodge, right? And not only is it a, a dodge, but it's also a red flag because they're like, ah, we can't really tell. Things are economically uncertain right now. And there's some unique things going on with the customer base that we're seeing. And we're all seeing the same thing. And this, they literally said that. There's some unique things, well, the grammar's terrible, but whatever, some unique things going on with the customer base that I think many in this industry are all seeing the same. This is like such a massive red flag for Amazon Web Services, but also folks, cloud, cloud, SaaS. This is a huge red flag. Combine that with what ServiceNow is saying and, and the dumping of the shares, huge cloud and SaaS red flag right here. And look what I wrote on the left here, because they say, so I don't have a crystal ball on that one, but we're going to continue to work for customers out there. And uh, don't confuse this for saying we have no deals. We do have deals going on. <laughs> but anyway, I wrote on the left side, I go, uh, you say you don't have a crystal ball, but you do have January data. Your financial report is only October, November, and December. But here you are on a conference call on February 3rd, 
and you're saying, I don't have a crystal ball, but you do have January data and you're not giving us any of the January data. All you're saying instead of providing the January insight is, yeah, we don't have a crystal ball. Uh, there's some unique things going on and, um, you know, yeah, long term we think things are going to be good, but uh, yeah, there's perhaps some short term belt tightening. That's their phrase. <laughs> uh, not great. Not great. So, so a lot of uh, a lot of pressures here that I I, I did not like in the uh, uh, Amazon earnings call. The last one was Qualcomm from the uh, from from earnings calls that we have to go through. Now Qualcomm, uh, okay. I mean, streamlining operations, more channel inventory. Uh, they talk about challenging macroeconomic conditions and headwinds in China. But what they do say is they expect a normalization in the second half of the calendar year. Now that's good. And it's a reiteration that even though things are challenging right now, we do expect that things will settle down in the second half of the year. Now that is something I get reiterated over and over and over again. Because here's Qualcomm and they're kind of guiding that things are looking flat for cell phone sales for the March quarter. So like basically uh, January uh, to March. That's not so great for this idea that maybe iPhone sales will pick up again at Apple because Tim Cook's like, oh, our supply chain issues are behind us. Yeah, well, <laughs> Qualcomm doesn't think we're seeing a big pickup in phone sales yet. But uh, they do think that January to March is more of a seasonal decline and they'll get back to gains in the second half of the year. And after those inventory drawdowns, maybe we get back to sort of a positive uh, EPS growth territory by like June and beyond. Uh, they also briefly just mentioned they have a lot of prepayments, and this is a little bit of a red flag for the chip makers. They have a lot of prepayments on hand at companies like, for example, maybe a Taiwan Semiconductors, and they're kind of calling them up and going, yeah, maybe don't spend the money yet. We just don't need the chips yet, so hold on a little bit. <laughs> it's like, uh-oh. So, uh, yeah, look. I don't see in any of these earnings calls any, any at all concerns about wages skyrocketing and labor being a big problem. I'm not seeing that at all in any of them. Not only am I not seeing wage pressures, but I'm seeing companies that are like, oh man, yep, we, we definitely have shrinking PP and uh, you know, some companies doing better than others. Starbucks killing it with pricing power and they're about to blow up thanks to China. Apple killing it more with pricing power than certainly an Apple or a Qualcomm. But overall, where, where's the inflation? I'm not really seeing it in these earnings calls. You're just, you basically, you, the only mention of inflation we had was from Amazon. And it was basically them saying the, the inflation that has happened is still affecting us. But I kind of think based on the rest of the call from Amazon, that was a slight cop out from Amazon. And that's what companies do. Like look at Procter and Gamble and Johnson and Johnson. They're like, oh, the inflation was so bad. Well, is it going to get worse? No, we think it's going to get better in the second half of the year. So why are you complaining about inflation? Because our numbers are bad. <laughs> that's kind of essentially what you had from, from those companies. So worth paying attention to these earnings calls. Personally, I think these earnings calls were incredibly insightful. And they give me a lot of, of uh, an understanding about what's going on in the market now. I, I uh, do want to add this because I thought it was quite interesting. And it's kind of out of nowhere and kind of a little bit random, but it's a fun fact. Apparently, there was a study done in South Korea 
Seoul, South Korea, and their national university that apparently our findings suggest that mask wearing has shifted from being a self-protection measure to being a self-presentation presentation tactic. In other words, pretty people are less likely to wear a mask compared to uglier people who are more likely to wear a mask. That was a study from South Korea. It's not me saying it. They're saying it. I don't know, but I want to know from you. What do you think? Is that possibly true? Maybe, maybe not. All right, next up. I don't know what's next. Let's listen to Fox for a moment while I figure that out. Over South Carolina. Do we know of any of these types of balloons going over American airspace before? Uh, not that we know of. I mean, Trump administration officials. I think it's crazy that they're still talking about the balloon. When I sat down and started streaming an hour ago, they were talking about the balloon. Now they're still talking about the balloon. Brief the White House or any of these top officials, which because there are accusations this morning. Thank you for that question, Rachel. Mm. There are media reports floating out there that this happened under the Trump administration. But when you talk to Trump or high-level officials, Mark Esper, others, they say, we never heard of a balloon during our administration. And if it did happen, we weren't told. Absolutely. I mean, I spoke with Ambassador John Bolton yesterday. Who was okay. Nighthawk says, that's a pretty disrespectful study. Crypto Lifer says... You and I should have an educational interview. This is like the third day in a row that you've sent 20 bucks. I appreciate it. I'm just not doing any podcasts or interviews right now. Eventually, I'll, I'll do them again, though. Um, maybe, who knows? Next you know, few weeks or couple months or whatever, once, once we get the schedule dialed in. Can't believe you haven't dyed your hair green yet. Do you expect a pullback? Well, thanks for $5, five euros. Ooh, that's more valuable now for saying that. Uh, well, Tesla didn't hit 200 bucks. That was the deal. Tesla had to hit uh, 200 bucks and it didn't. Uh, let's see here. I live 15 minutes from the new chip factory in Arizona. It's huge. <laughs> That's awesome. That's awesome. Typical Fox. Please change the channel. Unbelievable. PG. How could you, how, how, how could you slam Fox for showing the same map that we've seen like 17,000 times over the last two days about where all of our Air Force bases are? Maybe. Maybe we should just send a pamphlet to China and tell them exactly the addresses of all of these air bases. <laughs> Not that they don't already know. All right. Now it's time to talk Kathy and Ark. Oh, Kathy, what are you doing? All right. Now we've got to talk Kathy Wood and what is going on with this crazy big ideas pamphlet. It's 65 pages long. We're just going to look at some of the bottom lines and comment on them. But she's got a 65 page report on her big ideas. We already know four or her five main theses for all of these. Public blockchain. She sees a large scale incorporation of blockchain tech. Let me be very clear about my opinion on blockchain tech before I keep going here. My opinion on blockchain tech is very, very simple. It is that in the future, there's going to be no difference between blockchain technology, which is fantastic, and you turning on your water faucet. In other words, it is going to become a commoditized uh, utility. I don't want to say monopoly because I think there will be many different utilities. And much like in your area, you might be able to get AT&T or Spectrum. There'll be a few big blockchains that most people use, and they can be customized for certain purposes or companies. But... 
I, I, I don't find necessarily it's something that uh, we can directly invest into without a substantial speculation premium at this point. And eventually they'll just end up lowering costs at corporations. So I think corporations will end up benefiting most from, from blockchain uh, utilities. Uh, and, and so that's probably the best place to invest to get exposure to them is when it becomes profitable to use blockchains, companies will be all over that efficiency. That's my take. Now, AI, of course, we expect AI to be big. We'll be talking about that here. Battery storage, robotics, you know, Tesla, for example, buying their own robotics manufacturer in 2016 uh, in Germany. Fantastic. Uh, multinomic uh, sequencing or multi-omic sequencing, whatever. Genomic technology, great. Still going to be a while before uh, we've got substantial gene editing going into people who are already alive. Uh, but, uh, okay, it's going to be a space to pay attention to over the next few decades. That's that's absolutely true. Uh, there's talk over here that uh, smart glasses and basically virtual reality and augmented reality will be constrained until we get advances in battery energy density. Yes, possibly. But this is actually where Apple has a very interesting potential solution so Apple is coming out with uh, this, this uh, virtual reality and augmented reality headset. And what they're actually doing is they're detaching the battery from your actual head. And it's probably something you'll end up putting in your pocket. And uh, then unfortunately you have a, like probably a stupid lightning cable or something going down there. But it'll increase the functionality a lot. Because the last thing you want is some kind of headset that you can only wear for like 20 minutes and then battery's dead. Uh, it, 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 yes, in the future when battery technology is substantially better, yes, uh, it'll be a lot more convenient to be able to use these virtual reality and augmented reality headsets. Personally, though, I'm very excited about being able to, the Apple headset, I want to play with that because they talk about being able to turn a wheel, much like the wheel the Apple Watch has, and go from a virtual reality vision to an augmented reality vision. Now, I personally get headaches when I use virtual reality. I think the best kind of virtual reality will be something more like a Google Glass, where you basically look through glass and you see the world, but you get those little holograms or, or you know, heads-up displays that can pop up. I like that idea, but uh, TBD, the, the Voozy glasses that promised to do that were not, were not very good. Now, I thought this was a little remarkable, is that... Kathy thinks we're going to potentially see 8.5% GDP growth between 2021 through at least 2040, if not through 2025. That's crazy. Now, oftentimes, I think a lot of the projections that Kathy and ARK Invest do, and I respect them a lot, I agree with her, will probably exceed GDP growth estimates. Uh, but I think sometimes the projections they give are designed to make you go, that's nuts. And then make people talk about it. It's a great marketing tool. Fantastic marketing tool. But in order to sort of showcase how different this would be, we have this really highly manipulated graph on the left that takes GDP growth rates going all the way back to, I kid you not, 100,000 BC, before the Common Era. So in other words, 100,000 102,023 years ago is, is where we go back to starting to measure GDP for historical context. I don't think this is the kind of historical context we need. But anyway, Kathy believes instead of 
our economy is growing at 2.6% globally. They're going to grow at 8.5%. This is pretty remarkable. I don't think so, uh, especially with uh, deflation uh, coming, which I, Kathy and I agree on that deflation is, is probably a greater risk than inflation, uh, leading to substantial more productivity with less spending. More productivity, less spending in theory should unlock more GDP growth or it just unlocks less spending and people investing more. And if people invest more, their wealth goes up, which is great. But if their wealth goes up, GDP doesn't necessarily go up because the velocity of money on investing is like one to two, whereas the velocity of money on spending is like four to five. So if people invest more, they become richer, they're able to do more with less, but they don't necessarily contribute to GDP as much. I don't know about that. Uh, and I don't like the manipulation of the chart. So I'm going to give a red flag on that. Now, I do like this. I agree with Kathy when she says that AI training costs are declining at an annual rate of 70%. And that now the cost to train a language model has gone down from $4.6 million to just $450,000 in two years. And that AI should increase the productivity of knowledge workers by more than 4x. Now, there are two things that you need to know here. Number one, what should you do to prevent yourself from getting replaced by AI? There's only one thing you can do. You can be a creative. That's it. You have to be able to prove that you have creative input. Otherwise, you will get replaced by a robot. Okay? The second thing to know about this is, I, and I got a lot of, a lot of, like a lot of people were freaking out at me when I was talking about house hack using AI, uh, which, which we will do with, with human moderation. But a lot of people were freaking out about this because they're like, Kevin, how are you going to spend more money on AI than Google does? That doesn't make sense. You're an idiot. That's the kind of crap that I was getting in the comments. And it basically shouted to me, God, you know nothing about AI. Because, see, we can actually build our own AI using Google's AI. That's the point. So the better things like ChatGPT get and the better things like Google AI get, the easier it is for us to use their neural nets, train them the way we want them, and then we become more efficient. So AI is not this, this crazy world of everybody trying to build their own house, right? It's not like everybody's trying to build their own little hut and while that companies are creating their own little huts, a better analogy is to think about it as like, there's a massive house and what you're really doing is you're kind of like expanding that. You're trying to build on top of that house. Like, hey, let's build another add-on and let's build a second story. It's sort of these building blocks that are, that are being created would be a better analogy. Like think about it as sort of like Legos, right? The better Google gets and the larger foundation they build, the more people can build on top by using their products and services with uh, say like a Google AI or whatever. So I actually think it's great. The better AI gets in, in enterprise, the more companies can implement it into their own businesses. It's fantastic, absolutely fantastic. So, okay, some PDFs here uh, or some charts here on basically things becoming less expensive for AI build, fine. Already talked about that. 
Uh, AI could lead to a tenfold increase in productivity. Vendors could capture 10% of the value created by the products. And AI engineers could generate up to 14 trillion in revenue, blah, blah, blah. Okay, whatever. So he gets some crazy projections here on AI. But the other argument here that Kathy makes is that she believes that uh, AI will reduce the amount of average hours worked per day globally even more. Apparently right now the average hours worked, and I didn't know this, but apparently the average hour, hours worked daily, this includes like weekends and holidays and everything, is 4.7. So on average, people work about 4.7 hours a day. And Kathy projects this will go down to about 4.4. And that reduction in worked hours will probably lead to more time spent online. More time spent online should be good for companies like Trade Desk. Now, while she doesn't specifically mention Trade Desk, she does talk about how connected TV ad spend should grow 20% in real terms at a compounded annual rate, especially as TV non-digital ad spend goes digital. Interesting. Okay. Now, this, though, I thought was a little bit of a stretch. Talking about immersive virtual experiences should galvanize the next wave of gaming. And she's using this almost metaverse-esque example to suggest that Disneyland in California gets about 20 million at an annualized rate uh, attendees. And that... Tommy Play in Roblox or Walmart Land get more like 35 million annualized visitors. Okay. First of all, I don't think focusing on what children like five-year-olds are doing on Roblox is at all relative to families going to Disneyland, which is extremely expensive to travel to and extremely expensive to stay at and extremely expensive to visit for park tickets and extremely expensive when you're on the inside and you want to even just survive off food and, and, and drinks that you can get there. And you can't even get alcohol in most of, of, of Disneyland parks, which is crazy. It's like a crime. But anyway, beyond, beyond focusing on that crime, I, I don't know that there's any value at all in comparing the annualized attendance to theme parks in Roblox to real amusement parks. I, I don't really think this matters at all. Okay, Max attends theme parks daily in Roblox and roller coaster tycoons daily in Roblox. That has, in my opinion, zero to do with our spending when we go to an actual theme park. I don't know. So I'm not really sure where, where, where that's going. But then again, you know, kids do spend a lot of money on Roblox. Okay, then we talk about digital wallets and how digital wallets are taking over. I'm a little skeptical about some of this data because a lot of people have multiple digital wallets and I'm not sure that people having multiple digital wallets has been accounted for in some of these charts. And I think that's a big risk factor. Yes, more people are getting digital with their wallets. Yes, cash is going down, thankfully. Cash is stupid. You should never spend money uh, with cash unless you're buying drugs or things that are illegal. Uh, beyond that, I think everything should be on a credit card. Don't use debit cards. And of course, we should see digital wallet growth. But then again, I've got like, I feel like 17 digital wallets. So I'm not confident in, in some of those charts. 
Uh, I do think it's interesting, you know, Kathy makes it very clear there have been a lot of negative things that have happened for crypto markets, positive things that have happened for, for markets. Uh, but she talks most interestingly here about NFTs highlighting the potential for crypt mainstream crypto demand and could pro private key cryptography in the hands of millions. I, 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 don't, I don't know that I support some of these vague claims like dozens of companies and publishers have announced Web3 ambitions. The only reason companies are doing that is because it was a fad. The only reason Disney wanted to start selling, uh, you know, digital versions of Spider-Man doing stupid poses on, you know, Vive or whatever is because people are actually buying that garbage. And it's just a profit opportunity. I do not actually think that NFTs have any mainstream functionality if you're just buying poses. Now, it's one thing if I'm going to be able to buy an NFT and, and uh, you know, that gives that's like my annual pass for going to Disney. Fine. But if the annual pass for Disney, I don't know what it costs. Let's say it costs a thousand bucks, okay? Let's say the annual cost to attend a Disney park is a thousand dollars. Am I going to pay $2,000 for the NFT of that annual pass? Hell no. Would I pay $1,025 and, you know, I, I get some other perk that I value at $25? Would I then get the NFT? Fine. But it has to align with the, uh, the value. The value proposition has to be so great to convince me to actually give a crap that it really doesn't make a difference relative to here's your annual pass card. Okay, great. It's now in my Apple wallet or my... You know, the NFT part of my Apple wallet. Do I really think that has some kind of potential for massive, like, revenue for companies? No. It's just basically moving things from a physical thing to a digital thing, like the Apple wallet. Like, when I go to Dave & Buster's now, I don't use the Dave & Buster's power card anymore. I used to spend so much money as a child at Dave & Buster's, and I don't understand how my dad pulled it off because we lived paycheck to paycheck and didn't have money to do this. But he'd still take me to Dave and Buster's all the time. And I'd always play at that stupid rigged game where the little light goes around in the circle and then you try to hit the dot. And I'd win the jackpot a lot, but we know it's rigged. Uh, it, we, I, I didn't realize it was rigged then. I, I refuse to play it now because I realize it's rigged. But anyway, thanks. Uh, who did it? Mark Roper, I think, did the piece on that. But anyway, I had the gold card back then, okay? I felt powerful. Now I just have a stupid little digital thing in my app. Whatever. All right, so, uh, okay, yeah, so we know Bitcoin is inflation resistant, but this is ridiculous. To, to suggest that Bitcoin is transparent is absolutely ridiculous. We have no idea who holds what wallets. Yes, we can track as things move, but the transparency argument is not there yet. Unless we know uh, who, who holds every wallet address, there's really little transparency, especially when you have things like which I know Tornado Cash was shut down, but there are plenty of other things like Tornado Cash that make it very difficult for you to figure out what is going on on, on blockchain. Uh, yes, the theory of it is transparent, but, but it's somewhat ridiculous. So, uh, okay, Bitcoin is a durable network. Bitcoin getting to a trillion dollar uh, market cap again. Uh, or, or yeah, a billion. Uh, okay, yeah, and then Bitcoin going to a million bucks a coin. The, the thesis of going to a million dollars a coin is really this thesis that it's going to take the place of gold. So let's go over here. Here is the price target assumption. 
So the bear case is that no corporations want to hold Bitcoin is that in the bear case, global remittances, so sending is 5%. Okay, maybe because it's easier to send money internationally. Fine. Emerging market currency 0.5%. Maybe it's not going great for El Salvador right now, but maybe uh, global seizure resistant asset global high net worth individual deposits into Bitcoin 1%. In her bear case, she believes that Bitcoin will represent 20% of the gold market. The gold market's like $10 trillion right now. And uh, the bear case for Kathy is that by 2030, we're going to sit at uh, Bitcoin uh, $2 trillion solely because of gold. That's a 5x from where we are now. It's not too terribly unbelievable to think that is possible. That, that, that's not terribly unbelievable. So that's, that's a 5x, roughly, 4 to 5x in market cap. 20% of gold reserves in, in Bitcoin as a digital gold, especially with its inflation resistance. I'll actually give credit to that idea. Do we think it'll go to five, uh, 50% in the, uh, the bull case over here? A little more of a stretch by 2030, maybe by 2040, 2050. But if the other assumptions start getting a little extreme, that potentially 5% of all corporate cash will be in Bitcoin, or that 25%, so in other words, one in four global remittances would be done through BTC, and 10% of all US settlement volumes going through BTC for banking, I don't think so. I think banks will use their own blockchains, but I don't think that will have anything to do with Bitcoin or necessarily the Bitcoin Lightning Network. So I'm very skeptical of, of the bull case scenario. Uh, then, of course, we get to the idea of uh, pharmaceuticals need innovation. I mean, this is very true. Big fan of that. I think actually the biggest risk for pharma is uh, what kind of regulation we get out of controversies like the Pfizer controversies, right? Because think about it. Look, it's obvious Pfizer exposes itself to the potential for gain-of-function research. They don't call it that. They call it directed evolution because basically what they're doing is they're taking viruses and looking at, hey, if we infect five monkeys with this virus, which monkey has the most contagious strand? Now let's take that really contagious monkey and infect a bunch of other monkeys with it. And then let's take the most contagious out of that. That is called directed evolution, but it's dangerous because it's likely to lead to a virus that can actually gain functions because you're taking the more virulent strain over and over and over again. And so there's a risk to this sort of research of substantially new forms of regulation that limit the potential for businesses like Pfizer to actually continue conducting this sort of research. Now, on one hand, this is where society has to say, how much of that kind of studying do we want? And are we okay with that kind of research? I don't know, but there's a lot of social media backlash over that, which could potentially lead to a lot of new regulation that actually crimps the ability of the pharmaceutical in, uh, industry to continue to, to innovate with, with a lot of uh, the type of research they do now especially when it comes to mRNA uh, research. We'll see. 
I mean, it seems pretty incredible, at least the potential that mRNA could help solve things like cancers or cardio diseases or neurological diseases. And, and so it'll be interesting, but I think there's, there's definitely a regulatory risk factor of investing all in on genomics and, and pharma right now. And personally, I know enough to know that I know nothing about the pharmaceutical industry. And for me, if I don't understand it, I'm not going to invest in it. That's just my take in it. I do think there are going to be some really incredible new therapies uh, in the pharmaceutical and gene editing world. I'm really blown away with the stuff that you can already do right now. Even just sequencing embryos to decide, hey, like, which, which baby uh, embryo do you want to implant in an in vitro fertilization scenario that maybe doesn't have certain diseases uh, that, that uh, certain members of a couple have? So, you know, if a couple, one person in a couple has asthma, you could actually look at the embryos and go, which of the embryos doesn't have asthma and implant that. Now, that's also starting to lead to ethical concerns over, hey, like, are we, you know, engineering children? Uh, so these are all going to be things that society sort of has to deal with uh, and, uh, and evaluate. And I'll tell you, I know way too little about the pharma industry. To, uh, to, to be able to place bets there. So, uh, but I'm very curious about it. We'll see what happens. I do think regulatory concerns are going to be a huge potential impediment. Uh, anyway, so uh, here on the electric vehicle space, ARC forecasts that electric vehicle prices will decline and sales will increase at more than a 50% annual rate to 60 million units by 2027. I'll tell you, if, if we're going to get to 60 million electric vehicles by 2027, there's going to be nobody other than Tesla and maybe BYD that actually have the potential to fulfill that kind of demand that quickly. Uh, Ford thinks they're going to get to 600,000 vehicles by 2025, and I don't believe them as far as I could throw them. I don't believe Ford at all. I think Ford's full of crap, especially having gone through their last earnings call. It's disgusting. They see their biggest, they dodge questions on margin because they believe for their actual electric vehicles because they don't expect margin on electric vehicles because they can't figure out how to be efficient in manufacturing. They expect to make lots of money on software. But then you have to ask yourself, do you really think Ford is a software developer? It's not a bet I would make. Not at all. Faster charging rates projected by ARC. Kind of interesting to me, especially since uh, uh, ARC suggests that EVs have reached price parities with uh, internal combustion engine vehicles. I believe this. Uh, the <clears throat> EV charging rate, uh, this, this forecast, I also think is actually very exciting because one of the most frustrating things with tra uh, uh, charging right now electric vehicles is it takes long. It still takes long. You can go to a supercharger, and yes, the superchargers are great, but you go to most of the regular charging infrastructure that we have, the charge point chargers, uh, whatever, uh, Electrify America chargers, these things are slow. You're not getting a substantially fast charge at a lot of these places you're going to when you go to a restaurant. And oftentimes you go to, let's say, Disney World where they have charge point uh, chargers or Disneyland where they have them. You're plugging this thing in overnight. So once the stalls are taken, they're taken for a while just to charge one of these up. So 
That leads to a lot of anxiety for the potential new adoption of EVs. A lot of folks, at least anecdotally, who uh, are resistant to an EV are worried about the potential for being able to charge quickly. And so I agree that charging rates need to improve. And Kathy here suggests that in the past four years, charging rates have already improved nearly threefold from 40 minutes to 15 minutes for 200 miles of range. And during the next five years, it could drop fourfold again. She projects to getting 200 miles of range in four minutes. Now that is pretty fascinating. If there's the potential we could get down to 200 uh, miles of range in just four minutes, I think EV adoption can sustain uh, this, this growth that she's projecting, getting to 60 million vehicles over 20, by 2027. Because you need people suggesting, oh, I only need to plug in for four minutes. That's less than the time it takes to fill up my, my car with gas to get, you know, two, 300 miles of gas uh, uh, range at, uh, at, at a gas station. So kind of fascinating. Interesting idea. Battery cost decline should continue to drive exponential growth in EV sales. Yep, totally agree with that. Uh, although EV sales have scaled exponentially, the consensus forecast is linear. Now, I think there's the potential, and, and maybe she talks about it here, but there's the potential she's not considering the supply limitations via uh, lithium or uh, battery materials needed. So in other words, the Wall Street estimates are that electric vehicles are going to grow at a relatively stable rate, where she expects to see this essentially explosion in electric vehicle adoption. But the limitation of supply chains might be an issue here that lower the potential for EV adoption uh, and, and restrict the Kathy Woody and projection of EV growth. And that's not really mentioned here as a risk factor. I think it should be mentioned. All right. So then uh, we've got autonomous ride hailing scaling towards widespread commercial adoption. Today, autonomous ride hailing services delight riders across 15 cities internationally. Okay. I don't think we're close to this. I understand that in certain cities, things are perfectly mapped out, but I don't think we're mapping the world anytime soon. And I think even though, for example, Tesla's full self-driving is pretty good, you know, I give it a 90% grade. Tesla's full self-driving is still not good at seeing dips in the road, elevation changes in the road, even with the latest software update. It still does funky things. Like if you need, this is probably my biggest complaint with Tesla uh, full self-driving. I'll just draw it out. Okay. If you are on a, let's say, uh, uh, this is a road over here. This uh, number one lane over here is a left turn uh, lane that uh, that sort of appears. So that means you, you have a curb here and then the left turn lane appears, right? And that left turn lane is just a temporary left turn lane so you could turn left at a traffic intersection. So you've got the number one lane here on the left. The number two lane is your continuation of traffic lane. The number three lane is another continuation of traffic lane. And then your number four lane is a merge lane. So it's a temporary merge lane that then disappears. It gets curbed off, right? And let's say the Tesla enters uh, this space from the right. I have to deal with this regularly in multiple different areas. The Tesla enters 
from the right. So it's in the number, I don't know, three lane over here uh, on the right. The Tesla very regularly, when it has to enter uh, traffic uh, from a right turn, and it needs to end up all the way on the right, on, on the left. So we're going to go from X to X1. That's what we need to do. The car still regularly prefers to go into number four, get up to speed at number three, totally miss the left turn, panic and slow down over here and try to come to a stop to try to go over here. It does this at multiple different intersections. It still has not gotten the mentality that maybe I should wait for traffic to clear. And instead of going into the number four lane, I should wait until traffic's clear and go all the way over. Still not doing that. Now understand, that's just software we can get there. I'm just saying, it's stuff like this, it's stuff like dips in the road, and it's those more complicated scenarios that it's still not good at yet. I give it that 10%. So 90% good, 10% still doing a lot of learning. Uh, and I think it's gonna be quite a while before we get that sort of mass scale of autonomous taxis. Hopefully it's as ARC suggests by 2026. That might be a little optimistic. Now, the idea that ride hailing is an $11 trillion potential addressable market. Yeah, I'll agree with this. I, I agree that in the future, we probably won't even have our own cars. We'll just be able to take an iPhone app and go take me from here to here. And then you can get rid of parking lots. Then you can get rid of having a car and owning a car. But that's probably still 10 plus years away. This idea as well that taxis could eliminate 60% of short haul airline flights, also somewhat interesting because flying sucks. And, you know, going to the airport, dealing with TSA uh, and, and having to fly, you know, to like say Vegas, you know, a, a commute from here to Vegas is about six hours. But if I need to do that through LAX, I'm looking at at least an hour of a commute to get there. You got to be two hours early. I know you could show up last minute, but then it's scary. And then you get flight delays. Then you got to actually fly. Then you're at the airport. Then you got to get a rental car when you're there. You're not saving any time. You're still looking at a six-hour commute. You may as well have just driven it. If an autonomous taxi could do it, if the battery ranges are long enough, hey, maybe, maybe. So, uh, and then of course we get to autonomous logistics, robotics, and that. So. It's an interesting idea that uh, as time goes on, things, of course, are going to become a lot more uh, autonomous. And we'll see a, a substantial adoption in electric vehicles and autonomous taxis. But a lot of these projections, while they're, they're clearly on the horizon, uh, I think in the near term are not anywhere close to us yet. Full autonomous taxis, me, I don't, I don't, I don't see it yet until at least 2028 and beyond. Uh, at least another two to three years beyond the projections here. A million dollar Bitcoin takes some substantial, uh, substantially optimistic adoption hopes that I don't think we're going to see in blockchain. Uh, genomics, I think, are going to get really hampered by regulation, especially where we see uh, sort of humanity right now and its, and, and its willingness to allow uh, pharmaceutical companies to essentially have free reign on genomics and, and, and the engineering of, uh, of DNA. 
probably going to be some regulatory impediments in this world. And I think this is why you've got a lot of pharmaceutical companies kind of racing to do as much as they can now before they start getting limited. Uh, and then, of course, we have to consider supply chains for batteries, uh, artificial intelligence. That's probably the place I agree with Kathy the most in that really you can build AI no matter what company you are right now using what's already been learned in the AI space. So absolutely agree with Kathy on the AI space. And the potential for revolution in EV is there. Uh, it's probably going to take a little bit longer than expected, though. But overall, these are very good ideas, and we are moving towards a future that is in line with Kathy's vision of the future. Uh, but I'm, I'm, I'm not certain how, that they will come as fast as expected. So my thesis on Kathy's uh, big ideas projections. All right, let's see here. If you're able to charge at home, it's not really an issue uh, in terms of fast charging. Yeah, maybe. You, you got to keep in mind, though, a lot of people are frustrated about the ideas of or the idea of, of buying electric vehicles because they, they, they a lot of folks, when they make the decision to purchase a vehicle, they think about what they might do, not what they regularly do, right? So a lot of folks are like, oh, well, what's the range? Oh, can I get to Vegas and back without having to charge? Like these, these ideas of the edge case scenario surprisingly weigh a lot in purchasing decisions. Now I'm going to make this up because I don't know this with certainty, but I wouldn't be surprised that the range of a vehicle probably uh, is, is a purchasing factor for that has a, about a 30% weight. I'm making that up. But I would believe that people's decision to purchase one car over another in the electric vehicle space, 30% of the decision goes into range. I'm making that up, but I would not be surprised if that's true. On the flip side, the average daily commute for people is about 25 miles. So really, round trip, you don't need more than an 80-mile battery. That, that gives you, you know, 50 miles for your round trip and a little bit of bonus. You really don't need more than about 80 miles of range per day for the average user. Yet I think on average, most people substantially overvalue how much range they actually need. And that's going to take a while. And so I think Kathy's argument that, hey, well, as we uh, have charging networks that are more convincing to buyers we will be able to sell more EVs. So I, that's where I agree with her on that argument. Uh, let's see here. Uh, TBD on lifetime access on the courses. Interesting project to pharma industry with AI. Clintex. Boy, that's not the way I was going to read it the first time I saw that. Hmm. NFTs aren't just about art. It's about tokenizing everything. Yeah, I, I, I understand. Uh, it's going to be quite a while. See, I think people have this belief that like real estate agents are going to get replaced with NFTs uh, and escrow officers and that. It, it totally removes what real estate really is. Real estate is a human business. We, we can't remove the humanity from real estate transactions yet. Sure, maybe title companies can, can become more efficient using NFTs, but it's going to be quite a while before I'm, I'm, uh, uh, I, I think we'll see uh, 
a huge difference over there. <laughs> what happens if the entire country goes full EV and China sends a bunch of EMP balloons? <laughs> you know, we actually don't have EMP weapons uh, right now that at least we're widely aware of, right? Like nuclear explosions can create an electromagnetic pulse. But I have not seen a, a, a strictly EMP device outside of video games, uh, at, at least in the research that we have available. I'm sure the military has some, and, and then maybe we're just not aware of them. Uh, but beyond just exploding a nuke really high up in the atmosphere, like a conventional-style bomb, uh, you know, I, I don't think we actually have seen pure EMPs yet. Again, with a nuclear explosion up high in the atmosphere, you can create an electromagnetic pulse. But uh, that that's more of a byproduct than than the, the core uh, design. A lot of people use their garage for storage and park their cars in the driveway. Could have a part in thoughts on charging at home. Yeah, I mean, I don't know about that. I mean, it's pretty easy to put up a 220 volt plug in, next to your driveway or on your curb. It's not very expensive to do that. Uh, I've done it myself. Uh, As someone who just started to invest in the market again, do you suggest slowly buying into positions or saving cash and buying in bulk? I'm not the biggest fan of, of trying to perfectly time the market in bulk. I'm a big fan of looking at what what is, and this obviously isn't personalized financial advice. I don't know what your situation is. But I'm a big fan of looking at what, what are we seeing macro-wise, right? And, and what we're seeing is what feels like a bottoming process, right? Uh, here's a chart I'll pull up. I think this one's really interesting. It suggests that uh, usually when we're at the level of a yield curve inversion, as which we are now, we would expect to see a recession in about six months. And usually, it's worth aligning with that, that markets tend to bottom about six months before uh, the actual peak of a recession and the bottom of earnings. So take a look at this chart on screen here. It basically aligns the probability of the next recession with the inversion of the yield curve based on when the yield curve inversion starts. And the odds that we're in a recession now based on the yield curve inversion are about 2%. Whereas we would get to about a 68% likelihood in about six months. But then again, markets tend to bottom about six months before the bottom in earnings, which is usually in alignment with peak recession. And this is why stock markets often lead us out of a recession. So personally, I think it makes sense for, for myself at least to have a, a substantial exposure to equities at, at the valuations that we've been seeing over the last three months. Uh, it, it wouldn't be a surprise to me that the bottom of the market was in December, tax loss harvesting season, and that we have this Nike swoosh style recovery over the long term. Uh, and, and while I do think it makes sense to have cash to the point of you not being exposed to basically going bankrupt in the event there's some form of black swan event that crashes markets even more uh, and then you get margin called out or whatever. I'm a big fan of being exposed to markets right now. 
So there we have it. Thank you so much for being here for Meet Kevin Report number 14, our Sunday report, and we'll see you again tomorrow.